Everything on par. Be there! Scour the spaceways! Explore vast alien worlds! The tin right here contains the whole rigmarole. I used to smoke about an ounce of hash every day. And it made me go a little bonkers. Maybe. If I occupy his mind with more duties, I can control his space. Hi. Big fat doobies. Hi. Hi. Oh, hi. Today is Wednesday, September 21st, 2016. It's episode 190 of The Hot Box. My name is Matt Lee. i uh, got a great show for you today. First, we're going to hear from Talon Lang, a uh, patient outreach advocate over there in Montana. Going to give us another update about what's going on with the Battle of the Big Sky. Uh, and then after that, you're going to hear from Regina Huffnagel. Uh, she's a former federal corrections officer, and she's a member of LEAP. Uh, and she's going to chat with us about... About what Canada just did uh, doesn't really have to do with cannabis, but it is interesting uh, in regards to approving prescription heroin for addicts there. Uh, so yeah, got a great show, Hotbox Daughter. You can watch these live when we do them on hotboxpodcast.com/slash/thecouch. Big fat Hi. doobies. How you doing, Taylor? Uh, I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm awesome, man. It's a good day to be doing what we're doing here. Uh, you mentioned just yesterday that there was uh, some new new interesting information coming to light as far as the opposition to I-182, which is what people, good people of Montana will be voting on coming this November for a new medical system, one that is fixed, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very exciting. I think that the voters have an opportunity in November to uh, really rectify and fix the problems that the legislature uh, not only refused to kind of fix in session, but then uh, exacerbated and even made worse by uh, implementing Senate Bill 423, which we're only now starting to see the, uh, the real true effects of since it went into um, uh, effect as written just on August the 31st. So, um, you know, people will be able to get out to the polls in November and uh, and vote yes for I-182 and, and restore a, a sensible, reliable um, uh, medical marijuana and accountable medical marijuana program here to the state of Montana. Right. And, and the opposition, it's been the same gentleman we've talked about. I've written about it in the Cannabis Journal uh, a couple times, and he just has this beef with cannabis medical cannabis seem on the front he says recreational he's trying to keep that out and by doing that he is keeping or trying to keep all of it out uh and so you don't very often get to talk to people like that when they know you're on the side that supports cannabis and supports rational logical thinking and so when something like this happens what we're about to to talk about here like it it's it's interesting because it's a platform given to them in a sort of like, we're going to ask you questions that you dodge all the time, uh, but you're there in public. Like you have to do something. You have to say something, right? So the yeah, article, so we're it was a very interesting set of circumstances. Um, so yesterday, the, in Missoula, the city club, which is uh, a, kind of a nonprofit group of business leaders and community leaders uh, that get together once a month and have a luncheon and they discuss, you know, pertinent topics, uh, you know, things that that maybe people need to uh, understand a little better or get on their radar or, you know, uh, controversial issues or just, you know, things in general. So basically the format for the meeting is that 
Uh, there are two individuals that speak on a topic for about 10 or 15 minutes each. And then the individual tables kind of have a 15-minute discussion and come up with a question that each table gets to ask one of the members, one of the members of the panel, you know, those two people. So uh, the meeting yesterday was about I-182 and medical marijuana. And the person who represented I-182 and medical marijuana was Kate Haleva. Um, she is um, the industry representative for the MTCIA um, and has worked on this issue for, for many years. Um, she got up and told a little bit about herself and some of her background. She has a literary background. She's a published author. Um, she has worked within the legislature in many different uh, 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 many different functions um, as lobbyist and uh, with you know different things within our lawmaking process. Um, she told a little bit about the way she got involved in medical marijuana through the science of it because the science is absolutely fascinating. Um, mm -hmm. The human endocannabinoid system is is really interesting and it's a very new thing that was just recently discovered and so. The research is 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 fascinating. Well, the so more research about that, the more the research of it. they do on it, the more they find that this one system has a lot to do with all the other systems in your body, as far as regulating them and whatnot. So it, it's really interesting. This one piece kind yes. of controls. That's one how... of the points that, that Kate brought up: is the endocannabinoid system is responsible for homeostasis yep. of the human body. And uh, so, you know, that's very, huge. very interesting, fascinating stuff. Um, and then she talked a little bit about how we got to where we are right now and the travesty uh, that the 2009 and 2011 legislative sessions were, um, that the legislature failed to uh, put sidebars and, and a good regulatory structure on the industry and instead um, were hell-bent on repealing this voter initiative that 62% of Montana voters supported. So they pushed repeal through and the governor vetoed it. So they, at the 11th hour, came up with Senate Bill 423, cobbled together in a few hours by a handful of legislators. And it was a bill that was designed to fail. It was never designed to be a workable program for medical marijuana here in the state of Montana. And, you know, so that's basically where we're stuck with. And it, finally went into uh, full implementation on August the 31st, basically cutting 13,000 uh, patients of medical marijuana here in the state off. And Talon, that's so, like normal everyday people. They, they hear that and they hear those numbers and they're like, oh, that's, that's terrible. These people have no access to medicine that they have been taking and that has been helping them. But if you're in those groups on Facebook or reading in those circles, like it was a nightmarish apocalypse of sorts. People were literally freaking out about this. I mean, it's terrible. It it's really I mean, terrible. You have a medicine that people have had safe legal access to since 2004. Uh, that's 12 years that they've had safe legal access to this medicine. And it has essentially been cut off from them. So, you know, people are, we, we, in essence, lost our medical marijuana program with the full implementation of Senate Bill 423. So people are terrified. And, and we are the only state in the union right now that is moving backwards on this issue. Um, every other state, there's 25 medical states with an additional, I think, four, uh, four to seven 
They're looking at adding it medically an additional four. They're looking at adding it recreationally in, in addition to the five states that we have now that have it recreationally available. Um, so, you know, for every state to be moving forward on this and for Montana to be moving backward uh, really begs the question, why? And the answer is there's a gentleman named Steve Zabawa, and he was the second individual to present at this luncheon. Um, he had a little PowerPoint and had little bullet points that he uh, wanted to talk about. And the more that he spoke, uh, the more that he really kind of dug himself into a hole. Uh, he started out with uh, mentioning that in-state traveling doctors uh, are, are, are approved uh, with I-182. He, he made the claim, and I really don't believe that this is an accurate claim, that there are only three doctors in the state who are writing 10,000 recommendations to medical marijuana. And then, he, and then he made mention of how much money these three doctors, you know, could be making. He's like, you know, they charge people $200 a pop to get this recommendation. And, you know, these three doctors, you do the math yourself and look at how much money these doctors are making and, and stuff like that, which I don't know where that argument, you know, comes from. I don't know why he's opposed to people making money. Um, <laughs> I, I do saying... understand his argument of trying to say that the individuals are not getting, you know, uh, a standard of care that's adequate for, you know, if, if it's three doctors seeing 10,000 people. But I really don't think that that is the actual, you know, accurate case with, with the physicians that are referring no. to here. No. Um, there's also the problem of individuals, you know, such as myself, who are military veterans, whose physicians simply cannot recommend their uh, patients for medical marijuana. And there are a number, a large number of physicians in the state that because they work for hospitals that have federal funding or are tied to federal funding in one way or another, their hands are tied and they cannot write these recommendations. So it's important for us to have uh, auxiliary doctors that can write these recommendations for people when their primary care physicians can't do it themselves. Definitely. And we um, saw a lot of doctors getting scared away from doing yeah, that, the, you know, because of the, what could happen to them if they were recommending. Right. Well, you know, SB 423 only allows a physician to write 25 recommendations. Right. After that, they have to be automatically reviewed by the Board of Medicine at their own expense. And it's a costly yeah. and, and time-consuming process that's really unnecessary. I mean, doctors don't have to do that for writing prescriptions for oxycontin. No, and back when this was happening, or anything else. back when this was happening, that, that we brought that point up. Like, this is completely ridiculous. You can prescribe as many opiate prescriptions as you want. You're limited on the amount of... Uh, suboxone prescriptions i don't know if that's still the case but back then you could only have a certain amount of patients on suboxone to get them off of the opiates and now you want to put a limit on how many cannabis recommendations you can write like it we we, we drilled that horse to death back then when this was first happening but no one seemed to listen it, it really is ridiculous well um then the battle went off and you know, said that there are no prescriptions that are written for this. It's just a recommendation from your doctor. And, and, and the reason for that is because this is still a federally illegal schedule on substance, doctors just can't write a prescription. They have to write this recommendation. And this is the process in which people legitimately get their medical access to cannabis. Um, he was, you know, saying that all providers should be drug tested, you know, not even really realizing that maybe potentially a good portion of providers 
are patients themselves, and it's fully legal for them to use this cannabis. Um, and personally, he, if he started, if you have a grower that's not smoking, the whole gr- oh, go ahead. Growing your own medicine at home, where he said, uh, you know, where is another anything else that's medicine that you can grow at your house? And then he started to go into some of the finances of what a plant is worth and speculation of, you know, these people have tens of thousands of dollars worth of marijuana in their homes. Cause if you have one plant, you can have four mature plants and one plant you harvest it. You could have anywhere from an ounce to two pounds. And do you know what the price of an ounce is on the black market is like $300. So you could have like $20,000 in your house, you know, growing. And he really hit on the money a lot. And I think that's one of the things that he's quite hung up on is that he sees the money and the financial opportunity that is involved in medical marijuana, and he dislikes it. I feel that he thinks or he feels that it's an opportunity for people of a lower status or stature than him to be able to make uh, decent money, which he does not approve. You know, he wants to keep those people in their social place where they belong beneath him. Cannabis evens the playing ground, and he doesn't like that. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, he made a lot of mention about that and the money and and everything, and he's like, you know, there's no unannounced police inspections with I-182. If you're not doing anything wrong, why wouldn't you want to have the police up in your place any time they want to come in? I said, well, (laughs) you know, would you like to have the police coming into your place of business at any time of the day while you're, you know, in operation at your dealership or anything else like that? No, it's unnecessary. It's a disruption. Um, it, 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 it's really unnecessary. It, it's, in my mind, unconstitutional. For sure. Uh, goes against unreasonable search and seizure and a whole host of different things. Um, then he proceeded to lose every woman in the room when he said that I-182, uh, there are no MRIs for, for, for chronic pain. You know, you don't have to get an MRI in order to prove chronic pain. And then his example was, yeah, you know, these women, there's no, there's no way for them to go get an MRI to prove their menstrual cramps so that they can get their medical marijuana card. And every woman in the room audibly gasped, was like, <sighs> I mean, the air <laughs> left the room for the oh, first man. time that it was going to happen that day. It happened again later, which I'll get into. But his assumption and assertion with that statement was that either A, women are completely fabricating menstrual cramps and menstrual pain. It's not a real thing. It's something that they're just making up. And or B, that women are fabricating this simply to get a medical marijuana card so they can smoke pot and get all potted up, according to him. I so think, though, it was it was. It was terrible. Do you think that's just something he saw? Because that has been in the news as far as what Whoopi Goldberg was advocating for. I feel like he saw a headline that had the words menstrual pain and cannabis in it. And he just like went with it without actually looking at, you know, what the information was. Not that he cares. Well, that may be the case. But but more than that, I really think that he comes from a very, very old school and yeah. uh, kind of misogynistic way of thinking about things. Right. Um, and, and I, I, I think that, you know, the more that he speaks, the more that he becomes dislikable because he really 
um, you know, the perspectives and the places that he comes from are so completely out of touch with your average individual. And he says stuff like that, uh, that's very old fashioned, old school, uh, very kind of old conservative women have their place. You know, I, uh, am a righteous rich man. So I feel that I should have a place and a status in, in the community right. that's above I, people. You I know, walk like, with God it's, here. It's, it's a very, very interesting place that he comes from. Do you so. think, Talon, do you think that when he's, like when he's on, not the campaign trail, but when he's out there hustling signatures and everything, I feel like maybe a lot of what he repeats there is very practiced. It's looked over by a team of people to make sure that he doesn't do what we're seeing him do now, which is... A f- almost a freestyle just off the top of the head sort of thing because he's confronted with questions that were not prepared beforehand and this is well, the real guy this is this is him completely unfiltered unedited and i feel like his handlers are just in the background like face palming <laughs> at everything he says i don't even know you know he with the amount of money that he has spent on this you would think that he would have spent some money for a PR consultant or handler or anything else like that. But I don't really honestly think that he has done that. I don't think that he spent that money because hmm. if I was his PR person or handler, I would not let him out to speak public in the first place. Right. Him, like, period. You know, that's it. That's it. You know? And I think that when he's in control of the dialogue and he's out you know, collecting signatures and feels empowered, He's going to stick to his script of what he wants to say. Right. And that's it. When he's preaching to his choir. Off of his script. You know what I mean? Like he was in this in this situation. Yeah. uh, Yesterday. He is is lost. He's completely lost. And he starts ad libbing. And the things that comes uh, the things that come out of his mouth when he does that are really, really harmful to his cause. Yeah, it's like he once he gets out of his own filter bubble of talking to his own people who are just a bunch of yes men and women that just agree with everything that he spews, he's actually getting some sort of pushback, and I don't think he handles that quite well. No, no, he doesn't at all. So then he basically kind of wrapped up his little speech, and we had our 10 or 15 minutes together as tables to discuss the topic. Um, and, uh, then we got to, uh, uh, you know, ask questions of, of the, uh, panel members. And the first t- table asked, um, Steve Zabawa about, uh, he was saying that, you know, people that use this are just stoned all the time, that they're just worthless to society, that all they are is just all potted up and that they can't be contributing, all potted uh, up. you know, viable members of society. <laughs> so she told him that her son is a medical marijuana patient and has a job and is in California where he can legally use it and is a very productive member of society um, and had a job. And I don't, I don't want to misquote her or anything, but I think that he was like an engineer or, you know, some kind of uh, a higher level, high functioning uh, career. And she said, you know, he uses medical cannabis and he is not potted up and high all the time. And he uses it very successfully to manage his chronic pain. And, and so what did Steve Zabawa think about that or have anything to say about that? Well, Zabawa then started to go off on a tirade of how the marijuana these days is way more powerful than the, the grass they used to have in the 70s. And he likes to use all of these like 
very slang and, and casual and off terms like it's a reefer madness speak derogatory you know drug war type of term yeah and then he made a statement where he said it's you know it's not like alcohol like you know you can have a beer and get in your car and drive you're just fine he said that literally advocating for drinking and driving and then in the next breath said but you know if you take one toke off of a marijuana joint these days it's like having 10 beers and you're just out of control <laughs> what? You know? so you know which which everybody in the room just kind of chuckled and laughed and knew that he was so completely full of shit that you know it was just it was ridiculous like so, literally you know, pointing advoc- and laughing for at drinking him. and driving but then made a completely ridiculous statement about the potency of of cannabis and how it affects an individual in the same breath. Wow. I mean, you guys had to have all just gotten up at that point, standing ovation style, pointed, laughed, and just left. <laughs> I mean, it was, well, you wow, know, it was, it was definitely awkward uh, for him. I've know, smoked like 10 joints this the people morning. people in the room were not, were not buying his, his nonsense. No, um, I've, I've smoked then, 10 joints this morning and I'm, I'm so drunk right now. This is not making sense right? to me. I, <laughs> it's like having 20 beers. I man. know. I, have, I, so, I should not um, be driving. My table, my table got to ask him a question. And so I asked him a question that, that has been kind of burning uh, in my mind and something that I really wanted to have answered um, that I thought was very uh, pertinent to the, the discussion and to what's going on right now. So I asked him, Um, I said, Steve, in your presentations, you consistently warn against the supposed dangers of plant cannabis, even though there's never been a recorded case of someone dying from marijuana toxicity ever. Yet you tout the benefits of pharmaceutical forms of cannabis therapy, which are arguably more dangerous and less effective than the plant substance. Are you now or have you ever been invested in these pharmaceutical forms of cannabis therapy, including Marinol, Seasonet, Sativex? or any other form of pharmaceutical pharmaceutical cannabis therapy, and is that the driving motivation behind your desire to keep the plant form of cannabis illegal? Now, that question, I think, stunned him for a second. Jaw drop. And then he responded by saying that he is not, uh, nor has he ever been, uh, invested in any kind of uh, pharmaceutical company or pharmaceutical forms of medical marijuana. Hmm. Now, I find that to be very interesting because Hmm. uh, on multiple occasions, he has uh, told people and driven people to the GW Pharmaceuticals uh, website for clinical trials. Uh, He mentions them very frequently in his speeches. And um, so he's now on record as saying that he is not or nor has he ever been invested in you know, pharmaceutical forms of marijuana. He said, no, no, I'm just a used car salesman. Okay. So if Hmm. anybody does have any information at this point, which can prove that he is invested in medical marijuana, then, you know, that's very highly discrediting to him. You know, he tried to make money off of this at least once before when he was going to rent a property to a medical marijuana provider, but wanted 10% of their business. Right. So he showed that he is not afraid to profit off of this. Um, I am just hoping that somebody can come forward with good information that proves uh, uh, that he is invested in some type of form of medical marijuana. It's out there somewhere. And if not, it's got to be the other side, which is the, um, like the counseling uh, 
addiction uh management yeah. side of it because also yeah, yeah. very lucrative in its business model. Well, that's, that's another question that hopefully I'll be able to get to ask him at, at some time in the future, whether or not he's invested in drug treatment facilities that rely on people to be court ordered in for minor marijuana right. uh, infractions. So that's hopefully a question I'll be able to get to ask him at a later date. Um, anyway, so then there were a couple of other questions that were asked by, various tables. One of the questions was uh, asked of Kate Haleva about the harm of marijuana. And so Kate explained that because the human endocannabinoid system does not have a lot of receptors in critical areas that are uh, of your body that are responsible for keeping you alive, such as your heart and your lungs and your, um, you know, any of, any of those systems that keep you alive, um, that it is very, very difficult to, if not impossible, to have an overdose event that is going to be life-threatening using cannabis. That it's a relatively very safe, uh, very safe substance. And so that was her response, and, and I thought that it was, you know, it was great and addressed the question. However, Steve Zabawa just could not let it rest, and he stood up after Kate had, you know, given her response, and he was out of turn. He shouldn't have. And speaking, but he then lost the rest of the room by stating uh, that uh, Mr. Our, our Senator Tester's relative had just recently been murdered, and there were two bags of marijuana found next to his body. So he was asserting that marijuana is deadly and harmful because of this, and the whole room. Gasped. Wow. The, all the air went out of the room for the second time. Wow. And I just chimed up and asked the question, but Mr. Zabawa, isn't that more of a problem of prohibition than it is of marijuana itself? And we don't even really know all the details of what happened in that it's an ongoing investigation. And you're just assuming that it was because of marijuana and you're trying to make this about that. And it was just, it was very distasteful. You know, it's something that has just recently happened. That's chilling. Um, and, 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 and the family is still grieving, and they don't really know what's going on. It was just in very, very poor taste. Wow, man. I mean, completely chilling. And to just even have the, the chutzpah to bring that up in a room of people that are clearly not sharing the same opinions about this as you are, and then to just go with it. Oh man. Yeah. That appalling. It, it, it kind of shows where his head is at yeah. and that he has a, 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 a pretty big disconnect from, you know, uh, from or empathy, reality, you know, for other people's feelings or, you know, thoughts or anything, you know, uh, and, and when he gets something in his, in his head and in his mind, he just firmly sticks with it, whether he's right or wrong. Yeah. That's and to so, the, uh, I, I don't so he know. was he was quite unpopular. I feel at this event. I think that he, looking around the room, he thought that he was going to be amongst uh, allies because it was a room of well dressed, um, you know, somewhat conservative looking uh, business owners and community leaders and people of that nature. Um, you know, so I guess he just maybe assumed that he was going to have a lot of allies in the room, and I don't think that he had as many allies in that room before the event started and i know for sure he did not have as many allies after the event was over 
Definitely. And I mean, <clears throat> just we're glad that he didn't get the amount of signatures uh, to get his ballot ready for people to vote on, because then you have to kind of do twice the amount of work. You have to tell people why that's nonsense at the same time, telling them why I-182 is what they should be voting yes on. Uh, so with that out of the picture for now, hopefully, uh, we can focus on educating people on I-182 and all of the great things that it brings. A lot of the arguments we kept hearing was, oh, that medical law wasn't what I voted for. We were fooled. And I, I see that that's something the MTCIA is focusing uh, with this as far as uh, making it you know, upfront that this is accountable, it's responsible, and this is, this is it. Like This is what's going well, to fix all of this right now. Matt, I, I wish it were that easy. Um, it's not. However, <laughs> we still have the issue of Steve Zabala, and he's already begun his advertising campaign against I-182 here in the state of Montana. Um, he has billboards throughout the state that have a uh, no on I-182 and a huge marijuana leaf with a circle and slash through it. Classic. And on classic. the bottom it says, say no to pot shops. And the, thing, the thing that's kind of ironic to me about this is that Zabawa is a huge supporter of keeping dispensaries and any kind of marijuana-related uh, advertising and everything out of the public view, yet he has chosen to have billboards with a huge marijuana leaf on them strewn throughout the state. And I would imagine that potentially some of his billboards are going to be close to schools and churches and all these places that he doesn't want any of that imagery around, yet it's perfectly okay in his mind to have that imagery there when it suits his needs. Of course. So um, we're, you know, we're beginning to see these, these billboards pop up throughout the state. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's very disconcerting to a lot of people. Um, however, you know, MNR uh, is still working the campaign for Yes on I-182. They need your donations. They need my donations. They need our listeners' donations. They can go to yesoni182.com and they can donate there um, if they want to donate directly to the campaign. Uh, they can also donate to the MTCIA, who, who will be giving those funds to the Yes on I-182 campaign. But at this point, we do need to raise, you know, a couple of thousand dollars in order to move forward with the next step of the process. Educating so, is not cheap, definitely. And I mean, billboards aren't cheap either, you know, like and he's not just getting one billboard in his plate. Like we're seeing these, like you said, they're they're popping up across Montana now. Yes, he has them um, in, in just about every major city in Montana. Um, I know that, you know, they're in Missoula and Billings and Helena and Great Falls. Um, I believe they were in Bozeman and in uh, um, Kalispell, you know. Uh, so, and I don't know any other places so far, but I know that they're just popping up throughout the state. The rumor is that he uh, did about a $100,000 ad buy on wow. uh, countering so IO-82. That so, would you know, bring... He has he has hundreds of thousands of dollars to just throw around. Obviously, he spent a hundred thousand dollars on his failed initiative. He's dropping another hundred grand on this ad campaign against I one eighty two. 
So people should not underestimate his wealth, his resolve, or his desire to see this squashed. Yeah. Um, and we need to counter him financially as well. So people need to donate to the Yes on I-182 campaign. Definitely. This stuff is very expensive, and clearly the opposition has deep, deep pockets. So we definitely need to kick some cash over there to the MTCIA and to the Yes on I-182 help get that funded and maybe get a couple billboards of their own. Who knows? And I would also, (laughs) I'd like to throw it out to our more technologically inclined listeners out there that it would maybe be something nice to maybe see a Twitter account pop up or an Instagram account pop up that shows these billboards. And maybe I'm sure as billboards tend to do, they get defaced just like trains and buildings and walls. I mean, people just deface shit. That's what people do. Uh, so if you see one, and it's de- take a picture of it and send it in, and we'll maybe yeah. make a little collection, a, a mural, a collage, if you will, uh, of all I would of, actually, all of I would actually very much enjoy seeing photographs of these billboards throughout the state that are located close to schools and located close to churches. Because it will show the hypocrisy of Steve and his message that he doesn't want any advertising for this, yet he will post up the imagery himself um, as long as it supports his... Uh, his purposes. If it's so against I, I would it, love put to it see all those over. Types of pictures. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, man, that's that's amazing. I mean, it's it's sad, it's happy. Like, what a crazy story. I wish I could have been there to see it firsthand and and feel those chills and do shivers myself. You know, someday I'm going to have to write a book about this whole long roller coaster ride of 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 you know the story of medical cannabis here in the state of Montana. It's really been fascinating. And, and what a ride it's been. You know what? When this is all done, I'll finally let you take me to Burning Man, and I will write your memoirs on the way there. That <laughs> sounds great, Matt. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned uh, that there will be another kind of uh, public display of this man's vast knowledge on cannabis uh, coming up soon here that maybe the public can go and, and, and watch and be in awe of interchange. The interchange symposium is a talk show style event uh, where artists, activists, entrepreneurs, with different ideas and perspectives uh, kind of come together to address multiple topics and provoke thoughts of dialogue. Um, the public is also invited to participate and give their ideas during the event. So um, it's also going to be uh, developed into a podcast that's going to be available at, uh, www.iaminterchange.org. Um, so it's a humanities project that brings together contrasting and polarizing ideas in the same room to stir the pot. So basically, they're just kind of like trying to start a dialogue with this. Um, the uh, current lineup is uh, myself and Bob Devine, who are going to be speaking towards uh, medical and legal marijuana. Um, Steve Zabala will be representing Safe, Safe Montana, and uh, Jeannie Brown will be representing uh, the community at large, and she's also not an advocate. Um, we're looking at uh, a, a gentleman named Dan Dunlap, who's a retired DEA agent, mm-hmm. who's going to be on the anti side as well, um, and then potentially a patient named Katie Wetch, who uh, may be on the pro side as a, as a patient as well. So this will be happening on October the 4th in Bozeman, 
um, I believe from like 7 to 10 p.m. Um, as soon as I have more information about that and solid concrete information, um, I will uh, definitely be in touch with you to let your listeners know. So, yeah, Tuesday, October the 4th uh, from 7 to 10 p.m. Um, so in, in Bozeman. And I, I guarantee it's not going to be an event that people are going to want to miss. Definitely. I'm going to definitely try and make it out there to uh, check it out in person. But if you can't make it out there, you can definitely, like you said, they're going to have it as a podcast. So definitely something you'll uh, you'll want to listen to. Uh, and it might also be good to reach out to LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, if the anti-side is coming at you with an, an ex-DEA agent. I'm sure LEAP has many of those in their pockets that are just as four uh, getting rid of the drug war and prohibition uh, as oh, absolutely. Zabawa does. For well, you know, against. and the thing that's the thing that's very easy to, um, you know, to, to to counter is the arguments that are presented by you know DEA agents and former DEA agents are very very misleading statistics. You know, like for example, they'll say that the amount uh, or, or or number of people that have been admitted to uh, emergency rooms for marijuana related um, events has skyrocketed. Well, what they fail to tell you is that if you get sent to the hospital for a sprained thumb and you have THC or a THC metabolite in your system and you may have smoked three days ago, they still log that as a marijuana-related emergency room visit. So the statistics that they present are very misleading and are very easily debunked. Um, there aren't very many good arguments to you know, retain the prohibition of, of, of marijuana in particular, um, it arguably causes far more harm than the plant substance ever could. Yeah, unless you, like Willie said, you get a bail dropped on you. But, you know, <laughs> that yeah, happens with hay, too. Unless the of it falls on you, <laughs> you know, then uh, that's probably the most dangerous thing about uh, about marijuana it's having it in your pocket in a place where it's illegal. Yep. You know, people have died for that. Yep. It's the laws that they put on it. Well, Talon, thanks for the update. Always a pleasure uh, chatting with you about what's going on in Montana. Kind of my way to, to keep in touch with the place that that is my home uh, while I'm out here on the road. So I definitely appreciate it. And uh, yeah, once you get the actual info, let us know and we'll post it up on uh, social media and we'll hopefully get down there and see this in person. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be something that you're going to want to miss, Matt. And thanks a bunch for having me on. Once again, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I look forward to seeing you in the not too distant future. Excellent. Thanks, man. Taylor Lang, patient outreach advocate. Just giving us a quick update about what he got to sit through and watch down there in uh, in Missoula uh, at the City Club. And we'll put links to, there's an article from the Missoulian that talks about it. And of course, links to where you can donate to Yes on I-182 and the MTCIA. Big fat Hi. doobies. Hi, Regina. This is Matt with the Hot Box. How's it going? Good. How about you? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. So I joined law enforcement uh, when I joined the Army Military Police Corps when I was 17. Uh, and from there, I spent about almost 15 years in federal law enforcement between the Department of the Justice and the Department of Defense. Um, and I think the same goes for most people in law enforcement is <clears throat> we're motivated to, to join this line of work because we really do care. We care about our communities. 
Uh, and we care about our family and friends who live in those communities, uh, and we want to keep them safe. Um, and that was that was definitely my motivation for wanting to be in law enforcement. Um, and it didn't take very long to figure out um, that law enforcement isn't really what I thought it was supposed to be, uh, in particular as it relates to the war on drugs. Uh, right. The war on drugs actually creates more problems than it solves. Um, so I really noticed these uh, disparities when I worked for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, and for the first uh, four years, I was a correctional officer. And then for my last four years, uh, four or five years, I worked in receiving and discharge. Uh, and some of the things that I noticed overwhelmingly on a daily basis was you know, admitting and releasing inmates, <clears throat> most of the time, the inmates that I was, was releasing would be a black man who was serving a 10 to 15 year sentence for possession and possession with intent to distribute drugs. Um, and at this, on the same day, sitting right beside him, I'd be releasing this white man who was a child molester and he had only been sentenced to and served three years. And it really sort of haunted me that every single day I was seeing these massive disparities in sentencing where, you know, essentially we have this this crime that really isn't a crime, uh, especially in the absence of prohibition, uh, but where we have things like molestation, molestation and rape and murder. These are, are crimes that have actual physical victims. Um, and, and this is <clears throat> this is, I think, really what people join law enforcement for is to not just solve crimes with actual physical victims, but to prevent them from happening. Um, so all of those disparities and everything that I saw every day going to work, um, I just decided that it wasn't a system that I wanted to be a part of anymore. Uh, so I quit in 2010. Um, and I just moved on with life, uh, and I found law enforcement against prohibition a couple of years ago when I went to a symposium at Harvard University where the founder, Jack Cole, spoke. Uh, and he is a retired state cop uh, with over 20 years in the force, uh, and he really was able to explain to me and really frame for me what is wrong with prohibition and why it doesn't work and why it was that I was seeing the things that I was seeing every day. Um, and it really, uh, it was a comfort to me to know that there's 150,000 current and former law enforcement professionals, cops, judges, attorneys, probation and parole and corrections who see uh, prohibition through the same lens as myself, who, because they worked it for so long and they recognize that they were the cause of so many problems because they had to work within prohibition, that they formed this organization that really gives them sort of a shot at redemption to fix what it was that they did for their whole careers. Uh, I thought that is very admirable. Uh, so I immediately jumped on board. That's awesome. I mean, not awesome the way that it all happens, but that's great that there is a group out there that, you know, people can reach out to and be like, hey, I'm not mm -hmm. alone in feeling this. And I, I want to mention mm -hmm. now when you say that uh, what you were seeing there as far as kind of it, it being totally weighted to one side as far as the African-American community uh, contrasting with the, the regular just 
plain old white people was and that's more than just coincidence right it's not just oh these mm-hmm. guys happen to keep getting in trouble like it's more than that isn't it Absolutely. Um, So what we see is the lifetime likelihood of incarceration for a white man is one in 17. The lifetime likelihood of incarceration for a black man is one in three. Uh, And so and that is astonishing. Yeah. Uh, And what we see is that in primarily the war on drugs just creates this horrible cycle of people who become incarcerated now they've lost their rights. They can't vote. They can't carry a gun. It's incredibly difficult for them to um, get a job, uh, to get loans, to go to school, to better themselves. Um, and it really just perpetuates this downward cycle where even if they weren't using drugs at the time that they were arrested, uh, after they served their sentence, they tend to start using drugs. They tend to, t- tend to start going down this sort of rabbit hole of, of poverty and crime because all of the opportunities that they had are now taken away from them because they've lost so many rights and so much access to just things in life in general. So even after they've served their sentence for incarceration, when they get back released back into society, it's still further incarceration. Uh, by comparison, um, you know, those who are, are white uh, have access uh, to more resources to not just help them when they're in the court system, uh, but to also help them when they get out of uh, the prison system. Um, so, yeah, without question, there's a lot of racial, there's a lot of racism in the war on drugs. Um, and it's, uh, it's sort of an example of maybe the new Jim Crow, where before it was not okay to not like somebody because they're black. And so then we just relabel black people as criminals. And now it's okay to hate them because they're criminals. We don't hate them because they're black. We hate them because they're criminals. Right. And it's, it's left over from the originating purpose of the whole war on drugs in the first place. It had very, very mm. racist uh, roots, if, if you will. And it's weird to see how that's transformed through the decades, you know, with how, how the climate of people's tolerance for different things kind of changes. And then this thing has changed with that to continually mean the same thing. It's just a totally different label each decade or every, you know, 20 years or however long. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the most eye-opening articles uh, most recently written um, for public consumption was Legalize It All by Dan Baum. That was, uh, it was released by Harper's uh, Magazine and it was a, it was a five-page article about how the war on drugs started. Uh, and the war on drugs was started during the Nixon administration in the 1970s uh, because they were dealing with two issues. One was <clears throat> they had uh, the war in Vietnam going on, and they had a ton of protests by hippies. Um, and the hippies tend to smoke pot and do some hallucinogenics. Um, So they had this uh, public information campaign to paint the hippies who were against the war uh, and the drugs, their drugs of choice, uh, to paint them in a negative light. And then the issue was, of course, the black population uh, who was not into that administration and didn't support it. uh, And they also didn't support uh, the war in Vietnam. And so they painted the, the black people as a bunch of crack addicts 
and crack users. And being able to paint both of those different groups uh, with that lens uh, and, and then leading to the fear mongering, it allowed them to subjugate those two very, very large groups. When uh, it united them, it, it united them under one umbrella of just drugs and drugs equals criminals. Right. So therefore, all of you are criminals. And I feel like it was even before Nixon with Harry Anslinger and his whole uh, yeah. agenda. But it, it ties right in then to, to Nixon and then Reagan and, and, and up the chain. Right. And I think that if people realized what was the motivation behind starting the war on drugs and if they realized that it was all political, it had nothing to do with actually trying to protect the nation from harmful drug use. It had nothing to do with that. And I think that if people really realized that, um, you know, they would see things differently, unfortunately. And especially for me, I grew up, I'm only 38. So for my whole life, I've only ever heard about the war on drugs for as long as I can remember um, and how drugs are bad. And growing up with the D.A.R.E. officer coming into school and telling me about how drugs, (laughs) this is your brain on drugs, any questions with the frying egg? Yeah, um, I remember that. Uh, on the commercial yeah and so and so having consumed all of that information for my whole life and i think that it probably applies to a lot of people um it was really eye-opening for me to join law enforcement and recognize that uh the war on drugs isn't actually stopping anything it's making it worse it creates violence it creates cartels it creates corruption at every level in the criminal mm-hmm. justice system as well as the political system um and so if there was any question about if the war on drugs would or would not work we need look no further than alcohol prohibition Um, All of the problems that we saw with alcohol prohibition are the same problems that we have with drug prohibition. Uh, Nothing has changed uh, because uh, just because you make something illegal doesn't stop anybody from using it. It just creates a sophisticated network of an illicit market, an underground market. Um, And so we haven't solved any problems. We've just continued to make them worse. Then for people uh, on the I fence about it, if if anyone is, and I'm sure this show, we definitely kind of tend to preach to the choir of, of people already in the know, but all you have to do is look at their policy as far as the scheduling system. If this is something mm. that was set up to be uh, something to keep people safe, clearly it is corrupt because what's in there Indeed. and what it's in there with, they're two completely different sides of the, the drug spectrum you know absolutely that's i think it's it's fascinating to me i think that um cocaine is on the schedule two and then marijuana is on the schedule one mm-hmm. uh, and so you're right uh you know this whole idea of categorizing it based on um you know safety and efficacy and if it has any medicinal purposes etc uh you're right the categorization of it is incredibly skewed um i actually am, am working uh quite a bit here in Boston uh, because we have legalization on the ballot coming up here in November, uh, which gives me the opportunity to be exposed to a network with so many activists, in particular those who um, are veterans who are are on the verge of overdosing on opioids. Yeah. Uh, 
they're leading into this downward spiral of using heroin because they are addicted to opioids and they're either at risk of not getting their prescription filled because of their addiction um, or some of them are even suicidal because they just uh, you know, these opioids are not the answer uh, that they need. And so they, um, they've they really taken the initiative to get off the opioids uh, and to get on uh, medicinal cannabis, uh, which is actually the answer to their problems. Um, and so why what we look at, you know, the situation and say, well, if, if marijuana is, is legal for medicinal use, then why do we have to t- go to this effort to, you know, deschedule it? Uh, and to legalize it, like they have access to it, what's the big deal? And so the economics of it is what really a lot of people don't know. Uh, For example, in Massachusetts, it's legal to possess in an ounce or less, and it's legal for uh, medicinal purposes. Um, It still has to be provided by gangs and drug cartels. And so we still have the horrible violence that we see in Mexico, um, where there's violent murders every single day in order to get legal slash illegal uh, cannabis up to Massachusetts for, quote unquote, legal consumption. Um, People would actually prefer that their marijuana be ethically sourced, shockingly. Um, And then uh, because uh, it's legal for medicinal purposes, we've got this really high demand and very low supply. Um, so right now, uh, for a lot of veterans, the cost of legal marijuana, medicinal marijuana is anywhere from four to eight hundred dollars a month. Wow. Um, and that's just not something that they can they can handle financially. No, they a lot of those it, people it, are on fixed incomes and have a mm-hmm. hard time just making ends meet as is. And then whatever right. real prescriptions they're on are not cheap. I mean, I assume a lot of that is covered, but a lot of that stuff is quite sure. expensive anyway. And and then to, yeah, have well, that extra expense on top of it, it's ridiculous. And this is, it's the yeah. same play they had at the very beginning. It's the same marijuana tax stamp issue. They're like, you guys can all have it, you just can't buy it anywhere because, oh, we don't have any more right. licenses for that. <laughs> Our printer ran out of ink, right. and we don't know where to get any more, so good luck. <laughs> and it's just making things um, worse. Think, it's it's terrible. Uh, hopefully, and at least what I'm seeing is that there's been so much more public awareness about this because we're dealing with this opioid crisis. Uh, and people are really start, starting to take a hard look at the, the idea that the war on drugs does not work. If it did work, we wouldn't have an opioid addiction issue. So, well, especially um, vets, like the veterans are dealing with so much more than just that. And when you add an opiate addiction on top of that and everything that it's not just being addicted to these pills your doctor gives you every month, there's a whole vast array of emotions and depression and just ridiculousness that one has to deal with when going through that, that is, it's added on top of their PTSD and whatever else they're dealing with. And yeah, it's, it's just, right. it's completely ass backwards. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of my uh, good friends here, um, who I had the pleasure of spending the uh, weekend with at his booth uh, at the Freedom Rally here in Boston, uh, he's a veteran, and he was on uh, VA prescribed opioids for 10 years. At one point, he was on 57 different medications. Yep. Uh, he's got a wife. He's got two beautiful daughters. Uh, he was blown up uh, when he was at, uh, in the war, and he's got, like, his bottom five vertebrae that are fused to his sacrum. 
Um, he's had multiple surgeries. He can't have any more back surgeries, and he's in constant chronic pain um, to the point where he's on a fentanyl patch. And wow. he is an example of somebody who can walk into the VA. He can get tons of prescription opioids. He can get all the fentanyl he wants, but he has to choose between feeding his kids or using medicinal marijuana because it's too expensive. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And I, I was going to ask you if, uh, before we get on to what Canada's doing here in regards to uh, mm-hmm. diacetylmorphine heroin opiate treatment, um, how was the rally? I, I'm really far away, so I didn't have a chance to get down. I saw Russ Belleville posting yeah. some pictures, and it looked mm-hmm. like a great time. Yeah, so what I thought was really interesting, so it was a great time. Uh, it's a, it was a lot of vendors, uh, a lot of activists. It was mostly uh, people who just wanted to hang out on the common and and consume some cannabis and commune with each other and have a good time, which is fine. Um, That's great. Uh, One of the things that I kind of bothered me was, for the most part, uh, those who attended were white. And I know that from 2000 to 2010, uh, the arrest rate for marijuana for black citizens in Massachusetts actually increased by just under 75%. Wow. And I couldn't help, but yeah, yeah. And I couldn't help but do all the people watching and see so many white people there and wondering if maybe there were less black people because they were all incarcerated because of, of the increased rates of, of, of arrests from 2000 to 2010. Right. Or the ones um, that, that weren't that's were like, years. there's no freaking way I'm going out there to just go and get arrested or, or worse, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, and so I, that really sort of haunted me for the weekend, uh, just watching the, the sea of white people walking through, enjoying themselves and thinking that there's there's probably a sea of black people who they are maybe walking through the rec yard <laughs> because they don't have the freedom to be able to attend the freedom rally. Um, right. And that is really haunting because these are statistics uh, that you can get from the ACLU's um, The Truth. Uh, the uh, truth of the war on drugs in black and white or the truth on marijuana in black and white, uh, where it breaks it down by state, what were the arrest rates for marijuana, um, et cetera, et cetera, by year. Um, And that, uh, you know, nationwide, over 50 percent of drug arrests are for marijuana. And so we really are incarcerating uh, hundreds of thousands of people for a plant, which is outrageous. Yeah, it's especially when you look at what is happening on the other side when they all I'm all about like a nice legal system. I don't think you have to overregulate it. I think you could pretty much mm-hmm. treat it like a supplement at this point. If the dose makes the poison, right. you're not going to poison yourself. But it, it's mm-hmm. it's weird to see even with all of the regulations and all of the systems that have been in place for for countless years now there's still issues with opiates getting to people that they're not prescribed for people overdosing on them hurting themselves and others alcohol still gets into the hands of people mm-hmm. that aren't of age or you know there's mm-hmm. every system that they regulate and set up it, it, there's all this bleed through 
and that's you expect sure. that because that's I people. Think that there but always will be. Yeah, um, definitely. But I think also it's really important to not just follow the headlines, but to follow the trend lines. And what a lot of people don't realize is that even with this horrible war on drugs uh, nationwide, we've still seen a massive decrease in violence overall um, in the last 20 years. And the rates of teen access and use for cigarettes and alcohol has actually dropped substantially. And I think that that has not only to do with regulation. I mean, I experimented with alcohol and cigarettes when I was too young to do so, um, as does everybody, because it's part of being a teenager. Um, And so they do the same thing with marijuana, which is illegal. Um, We do see, though, that with public information campaigns about the dangers of these substances, um, that, that there is a decrease in use because there is a decrease in access. Um, and so when you talk about drugs uh, and you talk about what about the children, uh, we actually have massive amounts of evidence to show that when you legalize drugs and you regulate drugs, it actually is a better option of keeping it out of the hands of youth. Well, because what's uh, the alternative? Examples, like, you, what, you lie to them and scare them, and then they find out that you lied, so they're going to want to do it even yeah. more. If you educate them on what it is, what it does, and just be straight with them, of course that's going to happen. Absolutely. That's, because I, I didn't have the internet when I was growing up. Yeah, me neither. Now. And one of, the things, <laughs> one of the things that I noticed was when the dare officer would tell me all about how bad marijuana was and how yeah. bad heroin was and how bad cocaine was. And then I would see all of my friends who was, they were doing marijuana and they would come to school and they would still get good grades and they still had jobs and they were doing just fine. And I thought, well, how bad can it be? Yeah. All of my friends are doing it and they're doing just fine. And so it's a, it's a massive reduction in credibility on behalf of those who are supposed to be, you know, taking care of us right and then if they lie about that and they lie about that how do you know what to believe at that point like it's a very slippery slope and then it's you know pretty soon you're like well you are all liars so i'm just gonna have to test this all out for myself you know right right and then that leads to you know potentially very dangerous you know activities such as trying things like cocaine and heroin which we know are incredibly addictive uh, and they're incredibly harmful uh, and they really arguably don't have any medicinal purposes whatsoever arguably I just like to throw that in there um, and so yeah it's just the loss of, of credibility uh, at every level from the top down in terms of attempting to protect us which is you know what they're telling us they're doing but that's actually not the case no it's just a giant business model at this point it's terrible yep. yeah it so it, it's interesting to see Canada has always kind of had like the reputation of of being a little more, I guess, logical when it comes to drug regulations. They still they tend to follow what the U.S. does. I I don't know why. Um, But (laughs) here, I mean, we've seen it with cannabis uh, that they've been lax other than poor Mr. Emery. Uh, Mark Emery seems to keep getting a bunch of (laughs) a bunch of crap. But uh, for the most part, people people are okay uh, up there. And then this just came out uh, as far as what they're going to do with, uh, you know, being able to prescribe heroin to addicts. 
uh, that have gone through treatment. Treatments don't help. Um, as someone that has gone through treatment, I can definitely say that, yeah, the, the way that they do it normally doesn't really help. It's just kind of a either replacement therapy or, you know, you get out and then relapse again because you're, you're in there because mm-hmm. you have to be, you know, I mean, for whatever reason. Um, so I, I always sure. find this interesting in places that do harm reduction. They do seem to have really good luck with, you know, making things better where they're at and, and increasing the overall mm-hmm. health and and kind of vibe of, of the area that they're trying this in. Mm-hmm. Some of the uh, information surrounding that, and what I think is really interesting is the uh, the part of the public that does not know that harm reduction methods actually work, um, they're actually freaking out about this. They right. don't know that Portugal uh, legalized all drugs like 15 years ago. They don't know that Switzerland has a heroin-assisted treatment program that has been in use and successful since 1994. Uh, they don't for whatever reason, they don't know this information. And so they think that, you know, this is the craziest thing ever. You don't give heroin to heroin addicts. Actually, you do. Yeah, it's called um, methadone. So important to, <laughs> yeah, so important to point out, um, you know, LEAP does support uh, injection facilities um, and access to other options, um, I think, like methadone. Um, but what we have seen by and large in, you know, places like Switzerland and other countries that have heroin assistance treatment programs, um, that heroin maintenance has been shown to be much, much more effective at uh, mitigating and reducing um, addiction for uh, those in the community, much more, much more than methadone. Um, and actually, statistically, it's shown that uh, they're less likely to use other illegal drugs and they're more likely to stay in treatment. And so, that's awesome. And, and what people don't know is just sort of the details that are surrounding this. And what fascinates me is the New England Journal of Medicine actually wrote about all of this uh, in about 2009. And so in the United States, where we have this massive heroin uh, opioid epidemic, this is not information that we don't know that we don't have access to. So ultimately, ultimately, I wonder, you know, those who are uh, writing the laws and those who are writing public policy and those who are implementing these things, if they have access to all this information, why are they not implementing effective programs? Which then leads me to believe that they have some ulterior motives, which we can talk about another time. Um, But sort of the details around the Swiss heroin assisted treatment program, um, it started in 1994. And from 1994 until today, uh, the program has been that the the user has to be 18 years or older. Um, They have to have uh, suffered from being addicted and having daily use uh, for at least two years. and they have to have failed attempts at conventional treatment, meaning that methadone doesn't work, which goes back to what I said, is the heroin-assisted treatment actually works better than methadone. Um, they have to give up their driver's license, uh, and they can't um, – they have to go to the clinic. They don't go get their heroin and then leave. They have to consume it at the clinic, which gives the medical professionals the opportunity to assist them in their treatment, and this is really critical. Um, and so the, uh, what they saw since uh, doing this in 1994, and it was a result of having a really severe drug problem in the 90s, the same opioid epidemic that we have here in the United States now. Um, so what they found was that there was a 60% drop in felony crimes 
committed by the patients uh, after they were in their treatment program. Um, and there was an 82% drop in patients that are selling heroin. Um, and part of it's because those who are selling it are often selling it to get money to be able to afford their, their own addiction. Yep. Um, and so it, if they are, no longer have to sell it to feed their addiction because they're in treatment and they're getting better, then this takes a great deal of it um, off the streets. Uh, and what was really awesome is that there was nobody has died from heroin overdoses uh, since people have been admitted into the program. No one. Uh, the heroin is inspected for purity, which is really critical. The, that's the issue that we have going on here in the United States, is that the people who are using heroin, it's actually laced with fentanyl and carfentanil. Carfentanil is 10,000 times more potent than morphine. And so there's because there's no regulation, people don't know what they're consuming. And that's what's leading to these constant overdoses um, every single day all over the nation. Um, and this is absolutely taxing law enforcement. Um, and so a couple of other just sort of ideas um, and things that have happened uh, as a result of the program in Switzerland uh, is that new infections of hepatitis and HIV were drastically reduced. Um, and uh, let's see, what was the other one uh, that I thought can was we, really we fascinating? Should, we um, should touch on that for a sec, because I think that's really, mm -hmm. really important, and that is something that a lot of people that that aren't really involved in this sort of thing, I guess, it's very scary to them. And having states that you have to have a prescription to get clean needles, you see these problems because they're forced. Mm -hmm. They're not going to do it some other way. If you, if you've, you've ever experienced this, you'll know what I'm talking. Like when an addict gets in that groove, like that's what they're going to do. So putting rules saying that, well, you, you, you're not able to get this. So you have to just, you know fend for yourself like they go to some pretty extreme circumstances to get their drugs and that causes disease is, to spread and it's the nature of addiction exactly it's an addiction this is a problem these people don't have control exactly they're not making smart decisions because they're they're being uh managed by something else it's, it's an addiction yeah, so it's the idea that we would take this that... hard line stance that like you said fend for yourself this is this is not helping the problem. This is perpetuating the problem. Right. And we're seeing that firsthand in some of these towns where it's rampant there. I mean, there's yeah. literally junkies like zombies roaming the streets. I mean, it's it's terrible. Well, you know what else is really interesting? And I was just reading um, this the other day. So the opioid epidemic um, is, is stemming from a, a massive like just so many people who are getting on prescriptions for opioids. Purdue Pharma. And so what you have here, um, so you have doctors who for the last, you know, five, 10 years have increased the amount of prescriptions that they've written for mm -hmm. opioids. And because it's coming from a doctor, people think, oh, well, this will be fine because I got it from my doctor. And the fastest growing group of people in the United States that are being becoming addicted to opioids is actually middle-class white women. And so essentially what you have here is a growing population, which is middle-class white women who are mothers, they're soccer moms. And it's, if they're not already on heroin, it's leading to that. Um, and you're seeing not just the junkies on the street that are overdosing, 
uh, you're seeing soccer moms that are overdosing. Um, and so you have two, two dealers here. The first dealer is the pharmaceutical industry, uh, which is actually keeping the heroin dealers in business. Um, and for, for whatever reason, veterans, for some reason, are not qualified. Uh, when, when they say, I don't want to be on opioids, I want to use medical marijuana to manage my issue. Um, for some reason, they're really not listened to. But I think that if you start seeing a bunch of, you know, white soccer moms that are suddenly overdosing um, and they're asking for medical marijuana because they don't want to be addicted, I think, you know, maybe the public perception of, of this is going to change a little bit. Yeah, it's and that's how it usually starts. You know, there's a car accident or some sort of trauma, and then you get prescribed them, and then you just your type of personality, you know, kicks in. And if you're going to go down that path, that's what you do. And then the doctor takes you off, and then you get sick as a dog, and then you go out and find heroin. Like it's a, it's a really yeah. dark cycle, you know. Well, so the other interesting thing is, and I actually experienced this myself this past year when I needed uh, a surgery on my eye. Um, I had an issue with my cornea, and cornea pain is known to be a 10 on the pain scale. Um, and so I I was using just one Oxycontin, Oxycodone pill um, to manage the pain at night um, leading up to my surgery. Well, leading up to my surgery, one pill was fine. And then suddenly it was taking two mm -hmm. to dig into the pain. Yep. And I was like, wow, is this really happening to me right now? And then sure enough, right before the surgery, I was needing three pills. Uh, and so it is incredibly addictive. And luckily, I'm aware. And I also had an op opportunity to have a surgery that was correcting the problem. But a lot of people don't. Right. Um, and so it was really fascinating to me that in a matter of two or three months, I could have become addicted to opioids Yep. in such a short time. People don't realize it. And I mean, Purdue gotten mm -hmm. a bunch of shit about that for, you know, encouraging more sales than they should have, telling doctors that it was safer than they knew it actually was as far as addictiveness right. and all that. And like they fully knew what they were doing. I mean, how? what's the best business model ever? It's get people addicted to something that will make them feel like awful shit if they don't have it and then just sell it to them forever. Right. Like, mm -hmm. that's basically what Absolutely. they were doing. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, and so I think the silver lining in this is that, you know, because we are seeing places like Canada that are introducing heroin-assisted treatment programs and because we are seeing people who are becoming a little bit more aware of, hey, this war on drugs is not working. And then they, they start digging into it and they start listening um, and they start uh, putting forth legislation to say uh, this is ridiculous. Let's legalize marijuana, which then leads to, hey, you know, all of these arguments that we use towards legalizing marijuana, they all all of those same arguments actually apply to all of the other drugs yep. that are subject to prohibition that prohibition doesn't work. Um, so I think uh, it, I'm optimistic that we're going to start seeing some pretty massive changes coming up here in the next five or 10 years. Uh, and hopefully we will look back on the whole situation and wonder, like, what were we thinking what that we allowed this war on drugs to start in yeah. the 50s, 60s and 70s? And we let it continue for so long in the face of all of this information that we had to show that it never worked in the first place. Well, and I hope that there is a record standing that people can go back and look on and say, wow, what a bunch of idiots. I'm glad we got past that. 
because otherwise we're just going to make the same dumb mistakes over again. I mean, it's interesting to see what the government is doing with Kratom right now and what the response Mm -hmm. was to the synthetic weeds that were out there, K2, spice, stuff like that. A lot of that stuff was poison and and hurting people, you know, making people kind of go crazy between that and the bath salts. And they were kind of I didn't see a lot of movement or hurriness to like get get that fixed but kratom comes out and it's been out forever now and people know that it helps if you're an opiate addict and all of a sudden they're like "Ooh, that helps opiate oh no we can't have that and they're Mm -hmm. going like full force to schedule it and it's like, well, what about so, all this other? Yeah, it's ridiculous. I actually I, I read an article this morning about the woman who is leading the charge, who actually like established the first Kratom Association. Oh, wow. uh, she's a white soccer mom. <laughs> she is a white soccer mom from uh, North Carolina or South Carolina, and she used Kratom to get herself off the painkillers uh, for whatever it was that was ailing her. I think it was rheumatoid arthritis or something. Um, and so she is the one who is leading the charge, and she's doing a very, very good job. Um, and I had never really heard of Kratom um, until, you know, probably the last month. And, it, you know, it seems to me that any any option that falls into this category of this is an alternative to a pharmaceutical is what they're jumping on. Yeah. Um, and so it would seem that they are the foot soldiers uh, potentially for the pharmaceutical industry so that the pharmaceutical industry can keep making money. And that's actually what we saw. The makers of fentanyl donated $500,000 yep. um, to the anti-legalization campaign for marijuana in Arizona. Like, that's not as if your company wasn't shady enough doing that and just being like, yeah, we did that. We're proud of it. So what? Like, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Right. Agreed. Oh, well, I I do hope that this this gets solved. I mean, for for all of our our sakes. I'm optimistic. I really am. And I think part of it's because I am so exposed to what's going on in the community. And those who are um, really taking positive steps forward, baby steps sometimes, but very positive steps forward. These are not druggies. These are not people who don't present well in the public eye. Uh, These are people like myself who are professionals. They're attorneys. They go to work every day. They have families. They have children. Um, And they're very altruistic. Uh, and they're very erudite, and their ability to make a logical argument as to why it is that we should legalize, in particular, marijuana, but other drugs, um, they're very inspirational to me. And so hopefully that's not just my bubble. Hopefully that continues um, further on. Um, And so also, too, I should uh, mention um, for all of your listeners that law enforcement against prohibition, we're worldwide, and we have uh, members in every single state. Um, So if you are interested in having the conversation with those who sort of need the information, our job is definitely to educate. Um, So we book speakers all the time at colleges and at Rotary Clubs, um, any place where you can get a big group of people together to have a, a positive 
logical discussion about what is going on, you can go to our website. It's uh, leap.cc, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, um, and you can fill out the form and you can book a speaker. Um, And the other thing, too, is that, you know, sometimes we struggle with having this conversation with our friends and our family because we don't really know what to say. Um, And there's tons of information on our website about um, cops and judges and attorneys who want to legalize drugs. Um, And so that's sort of the other thing about it is that for some reason, you know, somebody who uses medical marijuana, for some reason, they're not qualified. What they say doesn't have as much weight as somebody who's in law enforcement. When you have law enforcement who says, hey, I have been doing this for, you know, my entire adult life as a career and I have seen the dangers of drug prohibition and here's my story and here is why we need to legalize drugs. It validates Um, it. It gives it a context from someone that was working in it. You know, it's that was their job. So it's it's huge, especially if you're getting something like this together in full prohibition states, no medical, no rec. It lends that sort of, well, hey, we're going to have a member of law enforcement come and speak. Like, how do you Mm -hmm. how do you come at that negatively from, uh, you know, if (laughs) if you don't want them to have their event like you can't there's nothing you can say to that. Right. Yeah. yeah. When they're like, wow, uh, excuse me, there's who? Yes, there is 150,000 current and former law enforcement professionals, an international organization, um, and they want to come talk to us and they want you to hear what they have to say about the dangers of the war on drugs. People just kind of get really quiet. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> which is great, which is fantastic. Um, so if anybody uh, wants to go to our website and they think they want to book a speaker locally, uh, they can do that. Um, and I think that there's other states that are looking to legalize um, marijuana for medical use and for recreational use coming up here. There's other states that have it on their ballot. Um, and so to really sort of push that over the over the hump. Um, and to sort like right now in Massachusetts, the recent polls show that 50 percent of likely voters are pro legalization and 45 percent are anti legalization. Uh, that is a that gap makes me really uncomfortable. Um, so the more people that I can speak to, the happier I am. So if you're local and you want to you want to get this conversation going, please don't hesitate to get me in front of a, a proper audience so that I can spread this message. That's awesome. Well, Regina, thank you so much for your time. And we'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes on our site as well. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Cool. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Leap member Regina Huffnagel, former federal corrections officer over there in Boston, Massachusetts. So thank you so much for that. Uh, everything else, hotbox.earth, hotboxpodcast.com. Check it out. We got some new stuff coming up on the cannabis site for cannabisjournal.com. You can find that stuff here this week. Uh, and then check out the YouTube. We got some stuff up from our trip to Alaska. Uh, a lot of the stuff that's on uh, Instagram as well. So you can find all that stuff there on the site. And there's a whole photo album upon Google Photos. I think there's like 800 uh, and something in there. But uh, yeah, feel free. Check it out. Uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, we'll catch you all next time.